Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Worldly wisdom is focused on the profit that would come from some knowledge or wisdom that I would profit or something to myself. It is almost always changing because the world is always changing. Would you agree? Have you ever been around someone that usually gives good advice? Some people have good advice about marriage. Some can give counsel about business or health. But the Spirit of God wants us to have His wisdom about everything for our lives. Godly wisdom, on the other hand, is a wisdom that is focused on the spiritual aspect of my life. It is unchanging, never changing, because it is based on the God who never changes. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today we dive back into 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul is emphasizing the necessity of the centrality of the Spirit of God. Two weeks ago, Pastor Clay gave us one of the reasons we must make sure that the Holy Spirit is central in our lives. Am I asking Him to guide me and give me His wisdom for my marriage, for my finances, for my job, for my relationships, for my dating, for my this, my that, all the different stuff? Am I seeking the wisdom of God or am I defaulting to the wisdom of the world? Today, he's going to walk us through two more reasons that Paul gives for why we must center our lives on the Spirit of God. This is all part of our current study in First and Second Corinthians entitled, Crossroads. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started. Years ago, I used to enjoy uh, diving. I used to do uh, diving, and I got certified to go scuba diving. And uh, you'd have to go through a series of tests, and, you know, it was all done in a pool and stuff like that. But uh, to pass and get your certification, what's called your open water certification... You have to get out of the pool and go out into the open water. And so uh, the, the class I was taking it with, we made a trip down to Key Largo and we went uh, scuba diving off the coast of Key Largo to get our open water certification. And we, it, was, it was super awesome because we got to dive on an old freighter that uh, I, I don't, uh, had been torpedoed in World War II and sank off the coast of Key Largo. Not by the Japanese, I don't think. I, I think it was practice for the Americans. But anyway, so this old freighter sitting down there in, uh, I don't know, somewhere 70, 80 feet of water that's down there. Of course, it's, it's just, it's crystal clear uh, water. So it's an amazing thing. And we got to uh, dive on this, on this wreck, which was, which was cool, right? Any of y'all, any y'all, anybody ever do any scuba diving? Okay, Sean. Anyone else? No. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, and so you're in 70, 75, 80 feet of water, which is not, you know, drastically deep, but it's deep enough that, you know, you're down there and you look up and you can see, you see the light, you can see the sun up there, but it's a long ways. And um, so when you're down there, there's lots to see, uh, lots going on around you. There's fish everywhere. And of course, there's other divers and stuff. And you're making your way from the bow to the stern and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, And so there's lots to see, lots to do. But there's one thing that never gets very far from your mind. Air. Air. Because you're breathing through this, this mouthpiece, connect it to this uh, hose, connect it to this regulator, connect it to this tank of compressed air that you're breathing, and you're very conscious that if something were to happen and you were to suddenly run, I don't mean that you know, it's got to consume you and you're like, oh, I can't enjoy this. But you can enjoy yourself, but you realize that if... 
if the regular stops working or if you run out of air mistakenly or whatever, it's a long ways to get to the top and then you got the whole compressed air and bends and stuff to worry about too. So, so you're very conscious of your mouthpiece, of your regulator, of your tank. You're very conscious of, of the little line that's floating alongside you that's got your gauges that tells you... How, uh, how long you've been down, how much air you've consumed, how much is left in your tank. You understand what I'm saying to you? Uh, that, that, that central thought never gets very far from you because if it ever gets very far from you and you're just like, oh, this is really nice, I think I'll stay longer, and you run out of air, you're in, in trouble. So the reality of the necessity for air is never very far from you when you're in a situation like that. Two weeks ago, uh, I mentioned to you as we dove into 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we started uh, looking at, at that chapter and I gave you what I called a, a big picture biblical principle at that time that kind of encompasses the entire idea of chapter 2. We started it and we're going to finish chapter 2 today. But I gave you a big picture biblical principle and the big picture biblical principle looked like this. It looked like the necessity for the centrality of the Spirit of God in our lives. The realization that the Spirit of God has to be central in my life or I could be in trouble in, in my life if He is not central in my life. And so that was the overarching biblical principle that I gave you. And then I, I gave you one reason why there is a necessity for the centrality of the Spirit of God in your life. If you were here, do you remember that? I gave you one reason why there's a necessity for the centrality of the Spirit of God in your life. And that reason that I gave you was... The Spirit empowers us. That we need a power source outside of ourselves to, to do this whole Christian thing anyway. And, and part of the role of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in me is that He empowers me. And I want to read those verses again to you before we move on this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Open a copy of God's Word there if you haven't already. The text, yes, the text is up on the screen as well. You can look there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 1 says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. That's not how I came to you. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And so, we said the Spirit empowers us and went, it went into great length to discuss that and, and see why that's so important and why we need the Spirit of God and what His power accomplishes in our lives. If you weren't here and you're interested in that, go back. Uh, those are those are all on our website. You can also find them, I think, on iTunes. Uh, you can podcast it or you can watch the video straight from our website, uh, crossculture.church. And so I encourage you to, to do that uh, as well. If you didn't catch that or you want to go back and catch it up. But having said that, number one reason why the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, whatever you want to call Him, as I said a couple weeks ago, one of the reasons that He has to be central in our life is because that's, where, that's our power source. He empowers us. I'm talking about for this this Christian thing that we're talking about, this doing Jesus thing. All right, second reason, uh, and the one we'll spend the predominant time on today, is this. The Spirit enlightens us. 
Would y'all say that with me? The Spirit enlightens us, enlightens us, teaches us, gives us His, his knowledge, his, his wisdom. Okay, let me read, picking it up in verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So that's 6 through 8. And that's, that's diving into this idea that the Spirit enlightens us. Now, when we looked at a couple weeks ago, and I said, and as I just read it again in verses 1 through 5, that Paul goes out of his way to remind the Corinthians that, hey, you remember when I came to you, when I was actually there, I didn't come with persuasive speech. He, he wasn't powerful in his speech. His mannerisms, there was nothing flashy or, or you know, powerful or whatever about his, his speech or his mannerisms, his, his message. It wasn't an eloquency. It wasn't any of that stuff. But just because the Apostle Paul didn't come in that manner didn't mean that he did not bring wisdom to the people in Corinth. But the wisdom that Paul is talking about here, the wisdom that Paul brings is godly wisdom and not worldly wisdom. And those are very different things. I want you to understand that. Those are very different things. That's not to say that... that all what would we call worldly wisdom, something we might learn in the world. or That's not to say that there aren't things that could be instructive or, or constructive or profitable or, or that sort of thing, but there's a difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is, is flesh-based, and, and I don't necessarily even mean that in a negative sense. I just mean it's based on, on, the, on, on this, this flesh, this human body, this world in which I exist, and uh, it, it is... It is, it is fleshly focused. It's focused on, on the profit that would come from some knowledge or wisdom that I would gain uh, to myself. Some gain or profit or something to myself as a result of that. It is, it is changing. It, it is almost always changing because the world and the culture in which that wisdom exists is always changing. Would you agree? Godly wisdom, on the other hand, is a wisdom that is, is spirit-based. In other words, it's focused on the spiritual aspect of my life. Where, where worldly wisdom or fleshly wisdom might be focused on, you know, hey, here's how you can do this or, or make the. Godly wisdom is focused on the spiritual aspect of my life. It is non-changing, unchanging, never changing, because... It is based on the God who never changes, Malachi 3, 6, right? So it is this unchanging wisdom that Paul brings into Corinth. And the mature that he mentions there in verse 6, y'all with me? He mentions those that are mature. The mature that he mentions in verse 6 are those who understand that there's a, that there's a worldly wisdom, 
a fleshly-based wisdom, and there is a godly wisdom, a spiritually-based wisdom. There is a wisdom that, that is uh, profitable from the world's perspective, and there is a wisdom that is profitable from the spiritual or from God's perspective. And the mature are those who have chosen the latter. They have chosen godly wisdom. They, they have looked at them both, and they, and they have determined that godly wisdom is better than worldly wisdom. And they have, they have come to faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. And then they, they are seeking out that wisdom that God's Spirit will give to us as a result of this relationship with him. And so they are maturing more as a result of this process. Are you with me? As we will see, Lord willing, uh, chapter 3 next week, as, as we get to in the next chapter, finding a mature follower of Jesus in Corinth was a difficult task. Okay? It, 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 was, it was a difficult task. But that doesn't mean that Paul didn't want to see them mature in their relationship. And you have to remember the context of Corinth, right? Remember the context of Corinth. To the west, you've got Rome and, and all of its influences and all of its beliefs and all of its uh, ideas and all of its religions. To the east, you've got uh, Athens with all of its philosophies and all of its religions and all of its beliefs and all of its so-called wisdom, both coming towards Corinth. And you've got the travelers and the merchants from the north up towards the Baltics to the south across the Mediterranean Sea, the Middle East and, the, and the, the north tip of Africa, all of it flowing into Corinth. All of those ideas, all of those philosophies, all of those beliefs, all of those ideas about where truth is found or what truth is, all of it flowing into Corinth. And so comes the Apostle Paul, also flowing into Corinth with a message so brilliant in its simplicity. You're a sinner. You deserve hell because of your sin. There's nothing you can do about your sin. But God loves you, so he did something about your sin. Christ died on the cross as a substitutionary atonement for your sin so that you could experience life and heaven. Simple and yet brilliant in its simplicity. That Paul brings to Corinth. You say, oh, okay, Clay, what's your point? My point is that that description of Corinth could just as easily and accurately describe your school, your workplace, your neighborhood, this city that we're living in in 2018. All, everybody's different ideas, everybody's different philosophies, everybody's different uh, idea of what is truth and what is wisdom. All of it uh, uh, flowing together and every person making their own decision. And into that same descriptive place that looks like Corinth, into that same place comes you and I. With that same simple message that Paul delivered 2,000 years ago. Christ and him crucified. It's the same message. But, and you probably noticed this as we read it, Paul says that, that God's wisdom came in a mystery. Do you see that? Do you notice that? that? That God's wisdom was in a mystery. Meaning, I want you to understand, meaning that 
it simply was not revealed yet to, to its full extent as to what it meant. It's not, it's not that God was trying to hide something so that men wouldn't understand or that men wouldn't know, but that in God's perfect timeline, you guys, you guys hear? In God's perfect timeline, the events took place, the, the birth, the life, the death, the, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, those events had not yet taken place. And so it was, in a sense, it was a mystery. It was hidden what God was in the, in the process of doing. But once those events transpired, once they took place, then it was a mystery no longer. It wasn't a mystery when Paul brought it to the church in Corinth. And it wasn't a mystery when, when he's writing to them again. And it's not a mystery for us today because those events have transpired. So it was in a mystery in a sense that it was not yet revealed. But mystery also carries the idea of something that cannot be understood. Now listen to me. Something that cannot be understood from a human perspective. This is something that he keeps emphasizing, doesn't he? He keeps talking about, to the world this is foolishness. He keeps saying that over and over again. He's going to say it again in chapter 3. But uh, from a human perspective, from human wisdom, from human, human philosophy, from human whatever, that... This, this truth of God will never be understood. It can never be grasped. It'll never be, oh yeah, that's right. That's, that, that it takes something more of that. It takes the Spirit of God enlightening, teaching, giving truth to people for them to believe it. You understand what I'm saying? You, you, are you, you understand? So it's something that, if you think, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll pick. No, it's natural man doesn't figure this stuff out. That's not, that's, not how it, that's not how it works. And then he goes on in the, in the latter part of verse 7, and he says that the, what's this? It's the hidden wisdom which God predestined, watch this, the hidden wisdom which God predestined, in other words, he decided ahead of time, before the ages, this is an interesting little phrase right here at the end, to whose glory? To our glory. Isn't that interesting? Because you expect it to, to God's glory. To his glory. But Paul, in fact, says that God, that God this, this hidden wisdom, this, this plan of his, the redemption of mankind, uh, which God predestined for the ages, was to or for our purposes, for our glory. Now, now get your mind about, around this, okay? Get your mind around this. Because basically, and I, I'm going to use somebody else uh, for this. I, I'm going to quote... Uh, one of the commentators that I read, David Pryor, basically, Pryor says, in brief, Paul is saying that in his wisdom, God decided on Jesus Christ and him crucified as the way of salvation. Now listen to me. Long before time and space began. Long before he created us in his own image. And more than that, he created us, uh, more than that, from eternity, he planned to bring all his saints to share his glory, to share in who he was, to share in the experience of, of who God is and all that God has created and all that God has for us. It, it, in that sense, it's for our glory. And God determined all this before the creation ever began. Listen, you understand what that means? That means that Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't a supplemental plan because we blew it in the garden and sinned. Jesus was the plan, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus Christ was the plan before the foundation of the world. As Peter puts it, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Peter says, God determined to send him before the world began. You mean before we ever even sinned, God already planned to send Jesus Christ? That's right. But he came into the world in these last days for your sake. 
So the mystery was revealed once it was completed. And, and in human wisdom, that will never make sense. As I said a couple weeks ago, if you were God... And, and, and we did what we did to him, and you rebelled against him, and you reject him. Would you do what God did? And so it will, it will never make sense. But God determined before he ever created us that he would send his son because he already knew that we would reject him. But his love was so great that he chose to do it anyway. I got a couple of amens out of that. I'm pretty sure I should have got more out of that. But that's, 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 uh, that's shouting ground, folks. That's, I realize this is a big auditorium, and it's hard, but that's, that's, that's an amazing truth. And if you think that you're going to figure this whole Jesus thing out by just your own reasoning or your own, it's just, it's not going to happen. This is God, the spirit of God enlightens. He is the one who teaches and guides us into this truth to, to know, you know what, I, I know that's true. Cindy and I just very recently, last couple of weeks, attended an event uh, on a Wednesday, Thursday night, I don't remember what night it was, an event that... Um, promotes and, and celebrates and calls attention to a radio ministry that is based here out of Raleigh. It's a radio talk show, Christian talk show, uh, hosted by Steve Noble. And I think the name of the show is No Sacred Cows. I think that's the name of the show. But every year he does this kind of celebration thing. He wants to make people aware and, uh, so people can have a part in his ministry if they want to contribute and, and all that sort of thing. So uh, we went uh, this year and... At the celebration, Steve had a, a gentleman, a pastor, uh, by the name of Caleb, uh, give a, Caleb, I'll get his last name in a second, give a uh, testimony, have a pastor give a, a testimony. And you think, well, okay, that, that, you know, I've heard pastors before. <laughs> They're really not that intriguing. Um, but he had him give a testimony. Uh, Caleb wrote a, I don't know how recently, but Caleb wrote a book entitled Messy Grace that uh, he, yeah, Caleb Kaltenbach. The book is entitled Messy Grace. I haven't read the book yet. I intend to read the book, but he had Caleb give a testimony, and Caleb's uh, testimony about the book is basically his story of how he came to Christ. And again, you're thinking, okay, pastor, how he came to Christ. You know, we probably heard this. He was in youth group one night in ninth grade, and he got saved, and he immediately got called to ministry. And, but that's not the case with Caleb. Caleb's parents uh, divorced when he was very early. I, I don't remember. He was like two or three years old. He was very young when his parents divorced. And what made Caleb's story so unusual is that both of his parents, both his mom and his dad, after they divorced decided that they were both going to start living a, a homosexual or gay lifestyle. Both of them. Now, Caleb said that his dad had lots of relationships, lots of, of partners through the world, through, through the years, but his mom uh, just had this, this one woman, this one uh, partner that, uh, that he's with for years. And so he basically grew up in their home, and he grew up with two moms. And Caleb said that his, his uh, two moms, and I think his dad when he spent time with him too, but they, would, they, were, they were all the time taking him to these uh, gay pride parades, gay pride uh, rallies, uh, all, you know, all the different you know, things that they have. They would, all the time they were going to all these and supporting all these. And he said, as a little kid, he, there was always in this, at this function, at this parade, at this whatever all was going on, that there was always this group of people off somewhere over on the side or somewhere, holding up these signs, screaming and yelling, holding up these signs, saying things like, God hates gays. Actually, they, it would, 
a little more crude than that, but I, I realize we probably have children in here. Um, uh, you, I, I hope you die. Signs say, I hope you die. Um, signs like, um, you, I don't know, whatever, all, all these different signs. And Caleb said he used to ask uh, his, his moms, uh, who, who, are those, who are those people? And they would always say, those people are Christians, and they hate us. Don't ever have anything to do with those people. And that was his understanding of Christianity. That's all he grew up. It was just people standing there with signs, screaming at them, saying, uh, I hope you die, you deserve uh, death, you, de- you deserve to, to go to hell. By the way, we all deserve to go to hell, and were it not for the grace of God that intervened, all of us would. But that was Caleb's understanding of Christianity, people that followed Jesus. But when Caleb was, I think he was 16 years old, he was invited to attend a Bible study. I think it was a youth kind of Bible study thing. And he went. He went, whatever the reason was. Maybe there was a pretty girl that he wanted to hang around. I don't remember. I don't know, I don't know if he tells in his book or not. But he, but he went to this Bible study. And uh, remember, his, this is all he's ever known is those are Christians. They hate us. Don't ever have anything to do with them. And I haven't read the book, like I said, and I don't have time to share all that Caleb shared that night. But as, as, he, as he told this story, he said as he began to read the Bible, and I think he, someone gave him a Bible that night at, at that study, but as, as, he, as he read the Bible, the more he read, he thought, man, I like this Jesus dude. This, 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 I like this guy. And Caleb said that as he read, he just knew this was true. He didn't know why, he didn't understand it, but he just knew what he was reading was true. And I don't know how long it was, it couldn't have been very long, but it, uh, as a result of that, or at some point, Caleb accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. He came to know Christ as his Savior. He went home and told his two moms that he'd, he'd become a Christian. They kicked him out of the house that night. Kicked him out. At uh, 16 or 17, whatever he is, he's, he's living on the street, he's sleeping on friends' couches, uh, followers of Jesus that, that, took, that took him in. Caleb eventually uh, finished high school, he went on to college, he went on to seminary, he became a pastor, he, he's, he's a pastor uh, today. By the way, uh, both of his parents eventually came to Christ. Both of his parents softened their attitude and they began to restore a relationship and they began to attend the church where he was pastoring and both of his parents eventually came to Christ. He said, I haven't read the whole story, I don't, I don't know the whole thing, but he told that in the thing. Now, here, here, here's my point. There is no earthly way no earthly way that Caleb should have come to believe in Jesus Christ or, or his parents. From a human perspective, there is no way. Because the only thing he knew about Christians were they hate you, they scream in, uh, uh, obscenities at you, they want you to die. Uh, that, that was his only exposure to people who called themselves followers of Jesus. Uh, I won't even start down that road today. But uh, that, that was, there's no, you understand what I'm saying? There's no human reason for why they would come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You understand what I'm saying to you? The Spirit of God does this thing. The Spirit of God is the one who enlightens us and brings us this truth. So you're not going to figure this out on your own. This isn't about you figuring out your own as far as, uh, as knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus and growing in Jesus and all this kind of stuff. This is something that the Spirit of God has to do in your life. Now, here's your role. Here's your part of it. Let me give it to you real quick because time, I know, is getting away. Here's your role. First, ask the Spirit to teach and guide you. Ask Him. Ask the Spirit to teach and guide you. I'll stand up here and freely admit to you that there's a lot of stuff about God that I do not 
fully understand or know. But I think that I can safely say that one of the things that I do know about God is that he's never going to force you to do this thing. If I understand the nature of God to any degree, I believe that I can say confidently that God is never going to force anyone to receive his free gift of eternal life. I believe he offers it to all. Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 28. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. Well, that only describes every person on the planet. And I will give you what? Rest. One of the great, right, right at the end of the Bible, one of the great passages in all the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. The spirit and the bride say, come. Notice the invitational nature. Come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. The amazing things about that passage of Scripture, one of the beautiful things about it is both the Spirit and the Bride, the church, are extending this invitation to any and everyone. Come, come into this relationship with God. Come to know Him. So, in asking, wanting, desiring a relationship with Him and desiring to grow, in the, ask the Spirit of God to give this to you. Ask Him. Second, allow the Spirit to teach and guide you. Well, what, what does that mean? How do I allow the Spirit to teach and guide me? Very simply, here it is, very simply, put yourself in position for Him to teach you. You've got to allow Him to teach you by putting yourself in position for Him to teach you. Well, what, what do you mean by that? Let me give you an example. Just happen to have one of these lying around. I, I have it on good authority that this is the predominant way in which God's Spirit will teach and guide us. It's not the only way, but it is the predominant way in which God will lead and guide and teach us is through His Word. You know what's coming, don't you? So, if you're too busy or too lazy to even pick this up, how's He going to use the predominant tool that He uses? How's He ever going to use it to lead and guide and teach you if, if you don't? And I'm sorry, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but, but this isn't complicated. But it is critical. It is critical. Another way that you can put yourself in position for the Spirit to teach you is by being still, being quiet, and being in position for the Spirit of God to teach you. And that's a hard thing for us. There is something about that that is hard for us to do. When your life, and I'm not, I, listen, I know, I know your lives. I, I, I know much, when, when, when your lives are, are so busy, so full throttle, so wide open, that you never have time to just be quiet and be still. And even when you do, even those times when you do, you find a way to, this is, a, this is my new phrase. You find a way to silence the silence. Do you know what I mean by that? You find a way to silence the silence. In other words, there's something about silence for us as Americans. There's something about silence that is awkward and we think unproductive. But do you know that's not what God says? Psalm uh, 46. What does God say? These famous words. Would you read them with me, please? Be still. And know that I am God. Oh, we are so rarely still. Uh, Psalm uh, 62, verse 5. My soul, wait in silence. 
My soul wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him. Putting yourself in position means sometimes, it, it, it means we don't like silence, so we fill it, right? We silence the silence with, with Netflix or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or video game or, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying those things aren't bad. I'm just saying when those things become substitution for the opportunity to sometimes just be quiet, be alone, and, and, and be in a place where the Spirit of God can perhaps speak a word of encouragement into my life, perhaps give me some wisdom about a decision that I need to make, perhaps uh, encourage me to, to speak a word to somebody that, that, that needs to hear uh, something, do an act of kindness. Uh, the Spirit wants to do, I'm telling you, the Spirit of God wants to do all of that in our life. And if we're so busy and if we're so loud and if we're so going that we never slow down to hear it, hear Him, then we miss this opportunity to be guided by the Spirit in our lives. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then, Okay, just the last thing uh, about that. Act on. That's the last thing I would say. Act on how the Spirit teaches and guides you. You see, the truth is, uh, we, can, we, can, we can ask Him and we can place ourselves in position for His wisdom, but listen, we are not some sort of uh, pre-programmed androids uh, that are going to do everything that, that we're programmed to do, that God wants us to do and perfectly do. No, we are flesh and blood fallen creatures created in His image which at the very least means that we have the capacity to freely choose to love or to hate, to forgive or to not forgive, to live holy or to live unholy, to submit to his authority or to not. You see, we have to, we got, we have to act on it. We have to do it. Jesus, I always love one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Luke chapter 6. Uh, Jesus says, so why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I love that passage of Scripture. I can just hear, so uh, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say? Because by definition, Lord means someone in authority over you. And uh, James, uh, never one to mix words, uh, James chapter 1, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Do you understand what, what we're saying here? We've got we to ask him, we've we got to allow him to teach us, and then we have to act on what he begins to instill and push and, and move and, and help us in this situation and let go of this and, 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 and grab hold of this idea. And that's what we got to do. And then I'll just finish up because I want to read the chapter. I want to read the rest of the chapter and I'll get, just give you the third reason, which is really kind of Paul reemphasizing what he's been saying throughout this. But it looks like this. The Spirit equips us. I'm going to read the last of it to you, 9 through 16, because I want you to hear this entire chapter. He says, but uh, just as it is written... Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of a man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that, we might, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Here he goes, here he comes back to this, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are, there's, there it is again, foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 
But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Basically, Paul is, as I said, kind of reemphasizing what he's been saying throughout this whole thing. That, that in the natural man, the person that you try and talk with who, who's not open to the Spirit working in their life... Uh, can't receive these things. They're foolishness, Paul said. This, this is ridiculous to them. That, that's how it say, that they would say it. But, he says, but we have it. We have this because we have the Spirit. Verse 10, again, says this. says, uh, for to us God revealed them. For the natural man? I, I don't get this. I, this is, I, what are y'all, are y'all crazy? Y- you mean y'all go down there every Sunday? And you give them your, part of your money? <laughs> and you... You went where? For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So these, these things that are hidden, these things that are foolishness to the world, are, are revealed to those who are mature in Christ and desire to have these, these truths revealed to them. You understand what I'm saying? They're, they're, they're asking, they're uh, allowing, and they're acting on these things. And so they're, they're receiving these things, and they're not foolishness to them. By the way, that last, latter part of verse 10 and then uh, verse 11, let me just say this real quick. There in verse 11, uh, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God, no one except the spirit of God. Uh, that verse is really strong support for, for the idea of the triune Godhead and, and the equality of the spirit of God, that the spirit of God is God. And his rationale is, listen, uh, you know, the only person that really knows, knows a man, that really knows a man, is that man himself. Deep down in who he is, he knows what he thinks. He knows what his feelings are. He knows more than anybody else. That, that's, if anybody knows him, it's, it's the man himself. So, well, in the same way, uh, who knows God except the Spirit of God? That who he is in his essence. So it, it, it's really strong support for the idea that the Spirit is co-equal God with the Father and with the Son. And then, real quickly, in verse 12, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world. That's, that's fool. You know, they say, oh, it's fool. But we've received something different. We've received the spirit of God that we might know the things freely given to us by God. The things freely given to us by God. Certainly, and let me just, I've got to wrap this up. Certainly, that would include spiritual gifts, which we will get to later on in this letter, where Paul goes into great depth about spiritual gifts and what it was, because there was a lot of confusion in Corinth about spiritual gifts. But... So certainly it will include spiritual gifts, but to just, just to grab a hold of that, that last kind of awe-inspiring thought, there's the chapter closes out, but we have the mind of Christ. It's an astounding thought. Doesn't mean that we are Christ, doesn't mean that we become, you know, little gods, but it means that we have access to the very mind of Christ. The, the, what, the, the, what's the old adage? Well, WWJD, what would Jesus do? You can know. Because <laughs> you have the mind of Christ within you. Or you have access to the ability. Because this, why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And the Spirit searches all things. Even the depths. Of, you understand what he, where he's going with this? What he's saying? The logic in all this? This is who you are. This is what you have access to. These are the gifts that God desires to give you. A life that is fruitful and productive and joyful and, and, and all the things that he desires for us to have. And, and, and the, world, the world would say that is worthless. 
But a follower of Jesus as the Spirit of God says that's priceless. It's the mind of Christ. Ask yourself today as we close, is the Spirit of God central in my life? Is the Holy Spirit of God central in my life? Am I, am I asking Him to guide me and give me His wisdom for my marriage, for my finances, for my job, for my relationships, for my dating situation, for uh, my this, my that, all the different stuff. Am I seeking the wisdom of God or am I defaulting to the wisdom of the world? Well, uh, you know, Dr. Phil says, and nothing against Dr. Phil, I'm just saying, Dr. Jesus has a better prescription. You have the mind. Of Christ. Ask yourself, am I really tapping into that? Am I making those decisions? Am I living my life in the reality of the Spirit of God being central in my life? That's a necessity if we're going to succeed at this thing we call following Jesus. Amen? The Spirit empowers, enlightens, and equips us for life in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul keeps emphasizing how foolish all this sounds to a natural man someone without a relationship with Jesus Christ. But those of us who have trusted Him as our Savior have His Spirit living in us, as Pastor Clay said, teaching and guiding us through life's difficult situations. As followers of Christ, we don't have to rely simply on human reason or wisdom. As the Apostle Paul said, we have the mind of Christ. We invite you to join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather each week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere to celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about a relationship, a community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person, real people who truly care, solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens, and the most energetic, fun, and safe kids program around. Find out more at crossculture.church. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church in North Raleigh, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.